Confucius, Socrates, Aesop, what do these guys have in common? They're great teachers who have never seen a PowerPoint slide in their life. Instead, they use stories to teach. We're going to talk to Justin Blanchard today about the power of storytelling and learning on the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Jake, did I catch you snickering during my cold open? Uh, yes. It was not me. <laughs> I had my mic off. I usually have myself muted during your cold opens because I often, yeah, laugh or snicker. So yeah, well, I don't one. know if you're laughing with me or at me, but, you know, yes. that's, <laughs> yes, yes. the answer is yes. Yeah, yes. Why does it have yes. to be one? Let's yeah, be exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to Learning Geeks. Justin Blanchard from Attensee. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So glad to be here. Now, you and I are uh, kind of brothers from another mother in terms of our passion for using stories to teach and games to teach. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I could wax poetically about this, but we would love to give you the platform for it uh, about what is your position on storytelling for learning? You know, what, what have you seen over the times? We're just going to we're just going to crank back and sit by the virtual fire and talk stories for a while. Lovely stuff. Okay, so my way into this is that I actually didn't start life in the world of L&D or pedagogy. I started as a, a writer. So if there is a kind of writing that you can get paid to do, I've probably done a bit of it. So we're talking script writing, we're talking ad copywriting, we're talking uh, marketing, we're talking stage and radio. And all of these different forms have different sorts of affordances. There's different things that each of those formats are good at. Um, but really gets great stories are about getting other people to feel stuff and other people to do stuff. And I, I like, I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but there is a <laughs> heck of a lot of overlap with uh, learning and development. And that's really where I come in at Atensi. So I'm creative director at a company that takes, uh, takes the working world and turns it into a game for the purpose of training. So we make these uh, simulations that force people to make decisions and take on information and become part of a story. And so I'm, I'm in the really kind of lucky and privileged position that I'm not only part of a team that's telling stories about these environments that are often unfamiliar to us, but also encouraging other people to tell me their stories. You know, what do you do all day? What parts do you enjoy? And so rapidly, those conversations start to have a lot in common with a writer's room. Because when you ask someone to tell you about their day or tell them about uh, tell you about a, a typical day, you end up with sequences of connected events, right? But to really get to the heart of it, I end up asking questions like, okay, who's the hero in this story? Okay, who are your villains? Suddenly people clam up. And it's like, no, really, come on. I know there are yeah. some villains <laughs> in your day-to-day -day story. Come on, who are they? They're not gonna go into the game, but you know, talk to me. Hey, Justin, yeah. quick question. So with your the diversity of environments that you've written for, I would imagine you could take a single story and write it from the different angles, right? You could write it uh, for a learning module. You could write it for a stage. You could write it uh, in context of a business letter. Uh, I, I, and I'm sure that leads to some good and bad views. How do you sort through all of that to determine, you know, what's the best angle to take when there's so many different things that are so many different perspectives in any given story and so many different ways it could be expressed. I mean, just, a, just a brief example, and we talked earlier in the green room about generative AI. Uh, I asked it to uh, write a poem about learning and development 
um, in, you know, write a poem in the tone of Dr. Seuss. And then I asked it to write it as a Shakespearean sonnet. And then I asked it to write it as a haiku. And each one of those were different and they conveyed different things. So how, how do you sort through the perspectives to get laser focused on the right one? That's such a great question. Okay, there's a, there's a couple of ways I'm gonna take that. Um, <laughs> firstly, I mentioned affordances before. We're, we're almost really lucky in the L&D space as storytellers, if you consider yourself a storyteller of sorts, because you have learning objectives. You aren't necessarily faced with the overwhelming paralysis that a scriptwriter might be faced with when they could be going for any potential effect. They want people to feel something, but they don't know what it is. Maybe mm -hmm. they have something they want to say, but they don't know how to say it. You know, when you're in an L&D space, you, you are writing directional stories there is an outcome that you want so suddenly you're able to think i mean all great writers do this in my opinion but you're able to think more about toolkits what do i want to happen so when we start to think about chat gpt and you're playing around going okay sonnet maybe dr seuss maybe we I, I read a great example the other day um hey explain to me this bank collapse as if uh, I'm a monkey and money is bananas. It's great. Okay. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a nice, uh, simple thing. You know, the, all the bananas are gone. The monkeys start to panic. Another gorilla comes along and says, don't worry, guys, I have a tree full of bananas. You're going to be fine. Um, so there, what, what we're really thinking about is what tools are good for the job. Um, sometimes it's a sonnet, sometimes it's Dr. Seuss, but I hope this isn't too twisty an answer, but it's it's horses for courses. It's different tools that are available to you. Yeah. Um, the other thing I had in mind around different perspectives is that's actually a really common use of um, the games that I work on and the games that, that my team produces. Hey, okay, you work in this silo, this part of your business. Uh, walk a mile in this person's shoes. Or alternatively, the structure of the game the structure of the story is telling you something about the world that isn't visible in your day-to-day -day. i really like the notion of perspective switching right yeah you're telling the story through the eyes of one person and then shifting it around and telling it through the eyes of some of another person that tends to round things out and, yeah. and add depth and dimension kind of a lateral thinking exercise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that that lateral thinking exercise is really, really interesting. So uh, without getting too wordy-wordy and philosophical, uh, trying to define <laughs> understanding is really tough, right? But a, a good working definition to my mind, and I don't think this is mine, is, is hey, can you see how this information gets applied in a, in a different context? Like, does what you know survive different shapes and different translations and can you use it in all of these different contexts and that that's also lateral thinking right and this is one of the things that stories and games are really really good at um philip pullman who's uh, one of my favorite writers has this fantastic book called uh, damon voices and it, it, he's giving advice and his thoughts on on storytelling and he talks about when when he's writing he is picking a path through the woods. He is not writing all about what's outside the woods. He's not even writing about past what you can see in the tree line, right? He's just picking out the most salient points. And storytelling and writing is about picking what you want to say. You are always going to be constrained. You have to make a choice. You can't tell a story without making an argument about what matters because you're mm -hmm. choosing what to put in front of people. Um, 
I wanted to ask. I know we're a Star Wars crowd. I wanted to Get ask out. about the Mandalorian. If that's okay. <laughs> are we are we allowed to do that? Is that valid? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. What do you think it did well? Of of which which one are you talking? Are you talking about the current up until season three, or just so far? Let's not let, let's not spoil people. What if we said like season one? Okay, like that's, that's a good what's, idea. What's yeah, we, well? don't, we, don't, we don't want to get into yeah, like yeah. implications of the dark saber against the mythosaur, and you know, we, yeah, we yeah. go, we get really deep really quick. <laughs> um, for, for me, the thing, the thing that was interesting about Mandalorian was you were going to at least get an initial audience just because it was Star Wars, which was great. Mm-hmm. But then I think they really distilled the story of it down to the bonding of a father and a child. Yep. And like, I I think that's like what the heartbeat is through the Mandalorian is that relationship between the Mandalorian and Grogu. And you want to see them stay connected. You want to see them uh, survive together and thrive. And so that's, you know, one of the big through lines is that emotional connection. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Actually, one of the scenes... It's in the first episode, at the very end, when um, Din Djarin actually sees Grogu for the first time, and it's actually a silhouette of the two, and it's him pointing out his finger, yeah. and and then also Grogu pointing the finger. Like that to me represents the stakes of that character. Like it is those two, the bond that they're already starting to establish right away, and I think throughout the rest of the series. And hopefully, I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but at the you know if we go on to season two. I won't say much of what happened at the end of season two, <laughs> but the very end of season two, you clearly that got brought up to the highest stakes possible. And there was a clear moment of what would happen if, if Din lost um, Grogu. Yeah. The, the reaching out was kind of the um, ET moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought I saw that somewhere else. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or on the roof yeah. of the Sistine Chapel, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What, what, what do you yeah. think, Justin? I guess returning to this, like picking out trees through the woods and choosing what you're going to say and what you're going to show. I, I I watched this with my sister-in-law, who's not a big Star Wars person, and she absolutely fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And part part way through the the second or third episode, she leant over and was like, Justin, what's a Mandalorian? <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic because yeah. it, it didn't matter. It did not right. matter in that exactly. moment for the story we were telling right now, right? Yeah. The heartbeat was around the relationship and that's, yeah. that's all that was important. Yeah. Um, and the relationship between part and whole is really interesting. The fact that this is in the Star Wars universe, there is so much you could potentially show. We have thermal detonators. We have all of like the, the baggage of this lore sitting around it and you do not need that. It's it's show don't tell. You do not need all of the Star Wars lore to get into it and understand that fundamentally it's this really gripping, emotionally moving story. Yeah, I think um, we're on the same page mm-hmm. with that. And another yeah. example, I would say, is even stronger that in Star Wars is Andor, where yeah. you know you took you took the Star Wars universe, but you took uh, characters and situations that were not like nothing that we have ever seen in any of the other movies, but mm-hmm. it was a super compelling story. You know, it, we knew that that was a formula that worked of the, the intrigue spy. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the, a lot of the people who worked on the show, the Americans also went on to work on Andor. It was almost like they took that level of, 
of kind of deep spy action and they put it in the Star Wars universe, it still 100% feels like Star Wars. At least it does to me. I know people argue about that. But um, but it was the it was the depth and the power of that story that made it so powerful and such a huge hit. If we take it back to more of an LMB and a, and a learning space, I'd be really interested to hear from you guys. We, we know that stories are like really great at listen, eliciting emotions. We know that people like them. We've been doing them for thousands and thousands of years. That's great. Yeah. Okay, it works. There's some some brain chemistry going on. That's lovely too. Um, in terms of nuts and bolts, I mean, day to day, I'm eliciting and creating stories and experiences to train people to do stuff. That's my bread and butter. I, I, I'd love to hear from you guys as well. Um, yeah, I guess, Bob, maybe we could start with you. You know, one thing that we've been we've been talking a lot about lately is the idea that I think historically we as learning designers have kind of started with, hey, subject matter expert, give me the list of, give me your list of learning objectives. What is it that people need to know? And it's all focused on that. And, you know, we've gotten some degree of success doing that method. What what we're really starting to do is a, is a simple pivot that I think is kind of like going back to going back to basics in some way and saying, let's start with the work. So instead of saying, hey, subject matter expert, what is it that people need to know? It's subject matter expert, tell me the story of what you do and how you do it well. And let me as the learning designer come in and ask you the questions to try to identify what it what essentially is that storyline of your workflow and where do you get stuck and where do you uh, not get stuck and where do you have to have something memorized versus have a little chart at the side of your desk or something like that. Uh, so taking that attitude about it has been pretty informative. So that's just one way. Dana, what do you what do you think? Well, what a couple of things came to mind and that the first one relates to it has to be grounded in something that is credible. Uh, believable. And I think I may have shared the story before, but several years ago, we were developing a course on contract risk management, which, you know, at a company the size of Accenture is a huge thing, right? You have to manage the risk of any contract. And and there are some contracts that that need help. And so we were developing a course for very senior leadership on how to best handle contracts that are starting to get into some trouble. and. Um, we put together just a beautiful course. You know, we had all the, the bullet points and we had the PowerPoints and we went to Frankfurt to pilot it. And uh, the head of the risk management department was there. Uh, he was one of our faculty. He wasn't the only one, but he was one of our faculty. And what ended up happening is every time he started telling a story, everybody laser focused because he was, he was so often parachuted into difficult situations and he could explain them in ways people could relate. So he gave him the context. And then he'd explain how, you know, after being parachuted in, how we'd get out. Uh, and and we, what we found is that most of the material we had developed was not important to the people that were in the pilot group. Every time we'd start talking a point, they'd say, uh, what do you think? You know, tell us a story mm. about when. Hey, I heard you were at such and such, a, and you did this. Tell us more about that. So I think that the fact that it was, grounded in reality, and it was so relevant to this target audience. Uh, it just made for a gripping session. As designers, we're like, okay, we got to go back and refigure this. This needs to be a story-based course, right? 
So yeah. uh, that, that's what I, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, you get that squirrel effect with the whenever the stories start, you get that squirrel effect, right? Like, like yeah. the dog in mm-hmm. Up, uh, squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. And if it's if it's if it's like a dead, uh, if it's like a frozen pair of socks that someone kicked rather than a squirrel, all of a sudden your attention is not focused there anymore. You yeah. Go back and <laughs> right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's yeah, be something sure. interesting. The hook needs to keep going. And there's something in that that sense of. of credibility is amazing and like that that comes from experience you can't just magic that up out of nowhere yeah but when we like why do people feel hesitant about telling stories and using storytelling like intentionally as part of as part of their learning i think that there's something there in the distinction between say a pedagogy and andragogy right like uh, teaching children versus teaching adults people are so comfortable with the idea that we use parables and allegories for for children but suddenly we what we hit a certain age and that stops working like no not at all but we do need to see learners adult learners are more quick to want a connection between their lived experience and and what they're being what they're being told and what what what's going on there yeah yeah Or, or adults have the perception that stories are for entertainment Stories are for mm-hmm. fun, so now I'm in business and playtime is over. Uh, let's leave stories at the door, you know. And, and there are there are other techniques that we use to teach children, such as songs or games, right? That we we mm-hmm. get the same reaction to. I, I think stories right now are probably uh, out of the three of those, right? Take games, take. A song, and I mean like a learning-focused song, like a schoolhouse rock, like a song that is designed to be catchy and stay in your head to help you remember facts or information, um, or a story. People in the business world now are are more warm to using a story. I think they get it a little bit more than the other two, uh, but we still have a long way to go, and we definitely have a long way to go on the other ones. Another dimension that kind of builds on that and answers the earlier question, Justin, is I think about uh, story in context of uh, what's the legacy the story is leaving. Um, because I, I'm, I'm holding up for those who are listening because we don't have a video. I'm holding up a book that is Dana and Julie Cox stories. This is a 370 page <laughs> wow. book. Dana that, just turned uh, it horizontally and almost like blind. Well, turned it vertically and almost blinded the whole. The camera because it's in. so th- well because it's so thick yeah it's a thing yeah. but so i mean it's it's a book full of stories and what it did is it gave me a great opportunity to re- personally reflect on the different experiences it also gave me an opportunity to practice writing stories that um you know i would i hoped would be compelling for future generations to read and uh, and then it helped me to kind of leave a legacy right and and i think there's a lot to legacy and story. Now, I, I've, each of my daughters have copies of this. And one of my daughters uh, at the beginning of the year decided she was going to read it. And as she's reading through, she goes, I'm so glad you did this because I was so little when that story happened. I didn't remember that. Hmm. And you've got all kinds of details in there. And then the other thing I did is I made a PDF version of it and I posted it on um, family search so that when I pass away, uh, any of my ancestors are going to be able to go out and read the stories that, uh, that uh, impacted our lives. Your your ancestor? Wait, Dana. Dana, your ancestors. My, my are descendants. Good? Okay, descendants. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Otherwise, that's very different technology. It is very different. <laughs> I'm working on version two right now. I've got a lot of the stories formulated, and they're going to be better stories than the ones in this one. But uh, 
the, the whole notion of what's the legacy that's uh, that a story can leave, I think, is intriguing. Mm-hmm. I, I actually was doing something last week. I was teaching some courses last week in the Boston area. And one of the things that we specifically had done is we, we call this exercise deconstructing your invisible insights. And essentially what we're trying to do is to help experts become storytellers of their mental models. So mm. tell me what your mental models are in a way that someone else can actually understand them. Mm. And the individuals, so in the, the activity, there's actually a learner and the, the quote teacher, and the teacher is trying to tell their stories of deconstructing their mental models. The learners there are there for the ride, but also to be active listeners and participators of the direction of the story. Tell me why this is the case. Mm. Help me understand this. Almost as if you're a four-year-old. Ask those questions. Act like you have no idea what it is, but it, it is to help that individual practice telling what's going in my mind so that way others can learn. Yeah. And that is a that is not an, a formal event at all. Trying to build skills for everyone in everyday situations to tell better stories of what's actually happening so other people can learn through that process. So that's that's one way that we've we've kind of used that approach, but in a, a little bit of a different light. I love that idea, deconstructing mental models. That's so, so interesting. Which is always fun. It's super fun because everyone always struggles with it every single time. We do it and they start for four minutes and they're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't realize how much is happening automatically. But when we really get them to think about it, they become better and better at, at telling that story of what they're doing. And Jake, I don't know if you remember, but a while ago um, when we were setting up our, uh, t our lab over in India, we mm -hmm. had toyed with the idea of how do you, could, could you in a virtual environment, you know, create a model, a mental model, you know, visual mental model of what you were thinking or of something that's in your head so mm -hmm. that it's not only words that are trying to convey that, but it's also images and pictures. Images, yeah. Right. We, yeah. we started to play with that and, uh, and uh, never really finished that experiment, but it was fascinating to think about how do you transfer somebody's, one person's mental model to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, so rather than through words, yeah, rather than through words, that was through, through visuals. Yep. So that, that, that starts getting us into an area of immersion in storytelling, which I'm interested yep. in from your perspective, Justin, about uh, as somebody who has experience as a game designer as well, how, how do you think differently when you're bringing in that interactive component? And, you know, like w one thing that I, I'd love to get your take on this too, we were just talking about The Mandalorian, but another very hot property right now is The Last of Us. So, mm -hmm. you know, they took a very successful story-based game and turned it into a marquee television series. And interesting to see how they're taking the same story beats, but now removing the interactive element and, you know, what they choose to leave in there and what they choose to take away. You know, how, how do you think about that as a storyteller and, and drawing people in? Because immersive stories are one of the best ways that people can learn. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, let's start with The Last of Us again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am hedged in by not wanting to spoil I know, this incredible story for anyone at all. It's such a good show, too. They've yeah. done so well. But, um, but uh, let me offer a, a little term for, for anyone who maybe doesn't think about 
games every day or, or is maybe new to the criticism of them. It's kind of an older term, but that, that's okay, um, which is ludonarrative dissonance. I guess mm -hmm. you could also have ludonarrative assonance. And the bit, all that's really doing is talking about are the story and the gameplay pulling in the same direction? Um, this also touches on territory you've probably heard elsewhere. I'm sure your listeners have too. The idea that the medium is the message, um, the format through which you're telling your story or, or delivering your training or, or trying to get some information across is also having a bearing on what's being said like it's all it's all condensed and it's all intermingled in, in interesting ways so the last of us what i will say about that is I, i'm not all the way through the series i actually okay. had to skip ahead to see how they handled the ending yeah um, i spoiled it for myself because I, I played it when i first when it first came out and the the ending of the last of us is the purest for me, the, the purest ever experience of, oh my God, I, I want to do this thing. Please, I hope the game lets me do this thing. And the perfect synthesis of needing to do the thing and having the thing happen, it, it felt like freedom. It felt like agency. It wasn't, you know? Right, the, right. The game was kind of on rails, but, but it gave me the impression and the feeling of agency. And that was so emotionally powerful and validating. And so when we start to think about games and stories and training i think that that sense of creating motivation for one part and agency and choice those those are the two angles that, that i would start to think about as we as we find our way in there that's really yeah. interesting yeah because last of us you're right you do feel like you have agency really when you don't but learner agency is so important and then as a storyteller slash learning experience designer, you've got to be able to accommodate those actual choices. So people do have the agency to, mm -hmm. you know, to try something and either learn from success or, or hopefully learn from failure. Um, I, I and, think that's just absolutely vital. And here's what I'd, what I'd, add, I'd add from a, like a cold, hard, practical perspective is that agency is expensive. It's expensive to create in terms of time and effort. And it's also expensive and difficult to, to produce just from a technical standpoint, right? It, choice can take all sorts of forms. But if you're trying to get at a directed learning outcome, whether that's through a, a game like an intensity style simulation, which is you know perhaps built around branching dialogue choices and narratives, or whether you're, you're uh, Bob, you've spoken before about some really interesting like immersive role play events that you've had that sort of start to creep into into game territory. Yep. Trying to find the balance between uh, the parable, like the on rails parable, and the playground that still has a measurable, achievable learning outcome is really really tough. It's really really tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, we mentioned earlier that we were talking about generative AI in the green room. And that's something that we have literally this last week just been playing with. We've, you know, basically locked the doors and put ourselves in a room and just been playing with it. And, uh, you know, it, it does a lot of great things. It does. It doesn't do a lot of <laughs> it doesn't do a lot of things that I think the press is making us think that it will. Um, I, I think it's a, a really, really valuable tool in the hands of uh, of a creator of any form. But we were talking about that, that like when you're talking about branching narrative, a lot of that expense came just in fully fleshing out alternative paths. 
And now you can have the generative AI jumpstart that process so quickly. We've got an opportunity to really uh, provide more choice to the learner because a lot of that choice comes out of a generative AI. Yeah, and it it kind of depends, right? So we're talking about choice that could be in terms of are you making a simulated experience where you're, you're kind of running through a story with with the AI or are you accessing uh, a body of information right like a, a big database of technical information that you might need if you were working at, at McKinsey or Accenture and yeah. my thinking there is that any simulation designer at Atensi is thinking really really carefully about the choices that are presented to you and their knock-on effects like the interesting thing is not just the agency and, and like getting to do different stuff the interesting thing is the consequences of your actions and those kind of have to like for now from what i've seen for chat gpt making sure that your actions have consequences in ways that are combining the nature of your choices and maybe there's a snowball effect maybe there's there's usually some sort of boolean logic you did this and this but you didn't do that so here's the interesting outcome and pruning those branches in such a way that when you go down them i know what you're learning like i know what the message is and you're going to get it um that is something that i think chat gpt is going to speed up massively it, it's great for like playing catch and throwing an idea around and, and yep. mapping stuff out but making sure the map is working for you. Yeah, I think I think I think we still need some humans. Yeah, that's a human art. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if we can just hit on another topic. I know we're getting close to the time, but um, Justin, there, there's been a big movement in a lot of companies, including ours, to shift learning into the flow of work right? so that people don't necessarily leave to have a training experience or a learning experience. But they're do, trying to complete a task. They need some type of uh, quick help in some way, shape, or form. How do you see storytelling fitting into that type of a, a learning and teaching paradigm? Yeah, really interesting. So, Dana, when we were speaking before, I, I mentioned, uh, at least from what I'm seeing, seeing and hearing, the apprenticeship model of education is you know again it's it's tricky it consumes a lot of time it consumes a lot of senior people's time and this is like the at the polar opposite end because you do not have someone sitting over your shoulder if we're if we're talking about i guess learn, learning at point of need right so the connection i would make is that this is a really good one this is a really really good one because stories take a bit of work right you, you need to set mm -hmm. up the context and as soon as you give that level of agency to the learner and to the user it has to be lightweight if, if what's being asked for is speed and immediacy and clarity then maybe stories aren't the best ever tool like maybe mm. that's okay i don't think that stories are a, a silver bullet swiss army knife used for absolutely everything but we do get to the idea of user stories and root cause analysis mm -hmm. and trying to get to the bottom of it. But then that, that, that's more a using stories as a tool to understand what yeah, the problem is right. rather yeah, than crafting a story for someone to go through. Yeah, yeah. right. I yeah. feel like I really talked around that one, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of say one thing on that one, Dana. The, the story I shared with the mental models actually was, you know, Justin, you mentioned apprenticeship. That actually was the course I was teaching. Yeah. It was around everyday apprenticeship. So when 
we think about mental models, that is a part of the process when I'm in the everyday flow of work. Now, this isn't necessarily performance support or in that, again, that, that term everyday in the flow of work is a very, very vague, you know, can mean many, many things to many people. But if I'm in the flow of work, I can actually learn how to teach you something more effectively. And, and now that's with human to human. But now, you know, you can think of more and more possibilities outside of that of the I can get that from maybe one day with technology to at least get started to then supplement that with humans, yeah. with adding, improving more stories of hearing from experts, hearing their their process. What does it mean to do this effectively? Tell me the story of when this really worked. I can start to generate my own mental models. Like there's a lot there that we can start to do with stories still with human human relationships, but also that could also open the door later for more and more creative things through technology as well. Yeah. When you, when you mentioned the, the mental models, um, asking people to deconstruct their mental models, that's genius. That's so much fun. I love it. Um, because I, I was talking earlier about like agency, true agency being really expensive to produce because you have to map out all of these, all of these different potentials. But of course, that's not what games really do. Uh, any games, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and yeah. making you feel like you have this agency. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that, that this relates to, to the mental model that an expert in whatever field has is that, that that's a view of the world, like it's a shortcut. They have developed this shortcut over many, many years of experience, and it's incredibly valuable. But it's a, it's an, it, they have a view of how the world works. There's a really fantastic uh, academic and game critic called Ian Bogost, who, if I'm kind of crudely summarizing one of his books, he says that a game is always an argument about the way the world works. Um, it's, it's an engine. It's a thing in motion, and it says, hey, this has value. If you combine these two things, you get this thing. Um, mm -hmm. true to a greater or lesser extent, but I see so much overlap between that mental model of an expert and what a game is and does and the kind of stories it's able to tell, because both of them are making assumptions about what's important. Those assumptions can be more or less useful, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Well, Justin, exactly. thank you. Thank you for being on the first six hour episode of The Learning Geeks, because we're just getting started. <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately, we have to wrap up. It feels like we could go on for for another six hours. I, I want you to have the last word. What What is what is one tip, technique, thing to keep in mind for kind of your Joe average learning developer that they can take from the world of storytelling and apply to their craft? So, you know, the, not, not the person who has the, the opportunity like we do to create AAA learning games or, or deep week-long simulations or things like that, but just the person who is in their back room uh, uh, pumping out courses. What would you tell them? Uh, I would return to the heroes and villains. I think that's always the most fun question and probably the easiest one to answer if you're honest with yourself. Who's the hero of the story? Who's the villain? And how are they going to be defeated? That's just such a, a nice little structure that if you can weave a tiny little bit of that into to what you're creating, I think you'll find people find it a little bit more fun. I love it. That's great. That's great. Justin Blanchard, thank you so much for being here. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Thank you for having me. Thanks to you, Dana and Jake. So this is Bob saying, join us next time for the Learning Geeks podcast. And until then, stay geeky, friends. See you later. Thanks, thanks everybody. everybody. So stay geeky. So I can start to develop my own. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> What'd you drop? Edit that oh, out. No. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I dropped all of that coffee on the ground, but apparently I didn't have any. Oh, whew. <laughs> <laughs>